I am Bruce. I am the pastor of middle school ministry here at Wyzetta Free, and I do get to share with you this morning. Before we get started, we are doing a series titled Be Great, uh, talking about true greatness, godly greatness, and as a way to introduce that every Sunday morning, we're asking everybody to stand up, so I'm going to ask you to stand and recite the verse on the screen with me as kind of our call to action. So if you would, Matthew 23, 11, the greatest among you will be your servant. Let me pray. Father God, that is our prayer this morning. Father, as we talk about greatness, Father, may, be, may it be your greatness that we are focused on and not our own. Praise your name. Amen. You may be seated. So we are talking about greatness this morning. Uh, I'm going to talk about, I'm going to look at the life of Moses and talk about what does Moses have to teach us about true greatness? Because I would argue, and I think scripture argues, that true greatness, godly greatness, is measured on a different scale than earthly greatness, right? True greatness, godly greatness is measured on a different scale than earthly greatness. And case in point, as I was getting ready for this message, I was reading Time Magazine, and Time Magazine put out a milestones to be aware of for the year 2017. As we start the year, here are some significant anniversaries coming up. And they, for each anniversary, they give you two things. One that's kind of their big token, big deal anniversary, and then something else that's kind of sort of related to it. According to Time Magazine, fifth anniversary, this is a big deal. The Gangnam Style video was uploaded to YouTube five years ago. If you aren't aware of what that is, you're lucky. Um, <laughs> also in style, this is the sub point, May 7th marks the 80, 80th anniversary of Ray-Ban sunglasses. These are, these, are, these are things that I'm, go ahead and get out your calendar, I'll wait, you might want to take note. Here's one on a, on a more uh, uh, 20th anniversary of Princess Diana's passing, 20 years ago, August 31st, 1997. Uh, for those of us that were around then, we remember that. Also 20 years ago, also in World Changing Women, January 23rd, 20 years ago, Madeleine Albright became the first woman to be U.S. Secretary of State, also 20 years ago in World Changing Women. And it goes on, the 30th anniversary of, of uh, AIDS drug, AZT, uh, 60th anniversary of integration at Little Rock Central High School, 80th anniversary of the Golden Gate Bridge, 100th anniversary of the U.S. entering World War I, 125th anniversary of Walt Whitman's death, 500th anniversary of Martin Luther. What struck me is, as I was reading it, I was going, ah, these are interesting, these are fascinating, is, is when I got to Martin Luther and then the sub-point under Martin Luther, also in faith, Mother Teresa died 20 years ago on September 5th, sub-point under Martin Luther. What struck me is it was less than a week after who... Whose death? Princess Diana. And I remember when Princess Diana died and, and the turmoil and the chaos and the hubbub and all the people. I don't remember less than a week later Mother Teresa's death. And largely that's because, as Time Magazine showed me or reminded me, earthly greatness is measured on a different scale than spiritual greatness than godly greatness. So I want to talk a little bit about what does it mean to be great in God's eyes, not just the earth's eyes. And as we talk about Moses, he's a great case study. Because as, we, as, as most of us probably know, Moses is responsible for a lot. He's significant. He wrote what we call the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books 
of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Included in there is a passage in Numbers where Moses writes, and Moses was very humble. (laughs) So we know it's true, because he said it himself that he's very humble. But in reality, we can see evidence of his humility all throughout scripture, and he's a big deal. And we start in Hebrews. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open to Hebrews chapter 11 because Hebrews chapter 11 is known as, to some people, the hall of faith, the hall of fame in, the, in scripture. And Hebrews 11 goes through all these people that are to be commended for their faith. All of these people. And it talks about Moses. And we get to Moses uh, in verse... 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. And it goes on and, it, and, and we're, we're told to look at Moses because he's an incredible person. Moses was very significant. He was very significant in his time. He was very significant to the people of Israel after. And and if we need, we don't need to look any further than Hebrews chapter 11. Because the, the whole chapter is about these people we're supposed to emulate and look at. And Abraham, Moses gets six verses. Abraham gets three. Isaac gets one. Jacob gets one. Joseph gets one. Joshua gets indirectly mentioned in one. Rahab gets one. And the last six names that are listed in Hebrews 11 share a verse along with the phrase and the other prophets. So Hebrews 11 goes to great lengths to talk about Moses. And oh yeah, there were these other people as well. Because Moses is a big deal. He was significant for the people of Israel. All throughout the New Testament, we read about the book of Moses. When they're referencing the Old Testament, it's the book of Moses, the law of Moses. It's not Abraham, it's not David, it's not Samuel, it's Moses. They were all big deals. Samuel was a big deal. David was a king, big deal. Moses was significant. When Jesus is transfigured in front of his disciples, it's Moses that the other disciples see with Elijah, not Abraham. Moses is a big deal. And, he, and for good reason, he's focused on. He led the people of Israel. He received God's law. He took them out of uh, Egypt and organized them as a nation. He led them. His birth was significant. He was literally in a class by himself because all the other boys his age had been killed. Moses was a big deal. If anybody had reason to sit there in front of the people and go, I'm Moses, I'm a big deal. It was him. 
So I wanna do a quick study of the life of Moses. And we know most of the story, right? We know how he was born. We know that, that anybody who's watched Disney's The Prince of Egypt has a basic understanding of the story of Moses. He was born when, when Herod was, or Herod, Pharaoh was all concerned about the people of Israel becoming too numerous. There's too many of them. We need to get rid of the boys so that they can't revolt. And Moses' parents, as we already read in Hebrews, hid Moses instead. And eventually, which being a father of numerous children, I'm amazed at how long they kept Moses in the house before they thought he was a challenge to hide. You know the phrase sleeping like a baby? Horrible. You know how babies sleep? Horrible. They wake up screaming in terror constantly. But they hid him as long as they could and then they put him in a basket and they hide him in the Nile and he gets picked up by Pharaoh's daughter and he gets raised in the king's court. He is adopted as a child of Pharaoh, which means he grows up learning all about Egyptian politics and religion. He, he's at the cutting edge. Pharaoh, uh, Egypt at the time is the cutting edge for math and science. He learns all of these things. He's destined for greatness in the world's eyes. And yet, as we just read in Hebrews, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Which leads me to ask the question, why? Why would he do that? Why did Moses make that choice? Why does he reject this life of privilege? Why does he, he seek uh, to, to, to go and live with his brothers. He looks around, he sees the Israelites who he knows he's a part of, he sees them being mistreated and he seeks to go and join them. Why? Well, part of it is because for the first 40 years of his life, Moses was trying to do it himself. Moses was trying to do it himself and we see that where, where he's standing out one day and he sees uh, an Egyptian persecuting, hurting uh, punishing an Israelite and, and Moses rises up in his own strength, in his own anger, and he strikes down the Egyptian and hides the body in the desert. And he thinks nobody has noticed this. And then a few days later, he sees two Israelites arguing and he goes, hey guys, why are you fighting? Come on, you know, let's, let's live together in peace. It's us versus them, not, not us versus each other. And they go, what are you gonna do, kill us too? And Moses then knows that, that his sin will find him out and he responds by running. Because Moses for the first 40 years was trying to do it himself. He saw his own greatness and was trying to do it himself. And so he flees. And he flees and he's, he's, he's hiding in the backwaters of, of the desert. He's in the wilderness. He takes a lowly job as a shepherd. He spends 40 more years raising his family and living as a nobody. Because I think in those 80 years, Moses needed to learn a couple of things. Number one, he needed to learn that God is who God says he is. And if that's true, if God is who he says he is, then I am who God says I am. No more, no less. If God is who he says he is, then I am who God says I am. And I read this quote by D.L. Moody and I think it fits. Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody. Then he spent 40 years on the backside of the desert realizing he was nobody. Finally, he spent the last 40 years of his life learning what God can do with a nobody. Isn't that great? Because Moses understood who God was and Moses then understood who he was. So then we get to see the Moses who leads the people of Israel out of Egypt. 
And he's set up very specifically to do this job, right? All of that training, all of that greatness, God had destined him for something and he's set up to do this job. And he's seen as a prophet in the Bible. In Exodus, we see, we see Moses' first encounter with God is at the burning bush and God speaks to him and says, go. You're gonna go, you're gonna go to Pharaoh, you're gonna get my people out of Egypt. And so Moses does eventually go and speak truth not only to Pharaoh, but to the people of Israel. He is the voice of God to the people of Israel. God speaks through him. He is a prophet. At Mount Sinai in Exodus 19.9, we read this. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. This was Moses' job. He was set up to be their prophet. He was the truth teller to them. In Numbers 12, 6 through 8, we read that when there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams, but this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees from of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So not only is he a prophet, he's the most prophet prophet. He's the prophetiest of prophets, right? He's set up to be a big deal. He was trained in Egypt and now God speaks to him face to face. Again, if anybody had reason to boast, he's also set up as a priest. Moses understood this setup because when he shows up in Egypt, remember he understood the Egyptian theology, he understood the Egyptian hierarchy, he knew that Pharaoh saw himself as a god. And if Pharaoh is a god, the people around him in the temple are priests. And many of them were by title priests. And so Moses fully understands, and which is, which is why he's a little nervous to go and confront Pharaoh. He gets this. Because he also sees in the plagues something that I think we often miss. And that is that in the plagues of Egypt, God is systematically deconstructing the Egyptian deities. He's taking them on one by one by one. And I read this. Uh, It's by a guy by the name of Steve Platt. The plague of blood, turning the Nile into blood, struck directly at all these gods. Khnum was the guardian of the Nile. Hapi was the spirit of the Nile. Um, Osiris was the god of the underworld, and the river Nile was considered his bloodstream. So when he turned it into blood, it was an affront to them. The plague of frogs, the frog or toad was deified in the goddess Hecht who assisted women in childbirth. The Egyptians deified frogs, they were sacred and could not be killed. So when all of a sudden the plague and all these frogs come up out of the Nile River, so many that they can't help but step on them and trample them, they are in them of themselves defiling their gods. The plague of lice, there's no direct God dealing with lice, but the priesthood was meant to be a clean people. And if they weren't clean, they couldn't go stand in front of their God, Pharaoh. So when they're covered with lice, it, it devastates them. The fly deposits its eggs on other living things. It was regarded as a manifestation of the god Uakit. Cattle, Hathor was the goddess of love, beauty, and joy, and was represented by a cow. 
Memphis in Egypt, the city, was known for the worship of Ta and its sacred animal, the, the Apis bull, which was a firstborn bull, which we'll see attacked in the 10th plague, but it was a bull. The plague of boils. The, the, I'm butchering these names, by the way. If, you know, if you're an Egyptian um, deity studier, uh, come correct me. Sekhmet was a lion-headed goddess supposed to have power both creating epidemics and ending them. So when they get the plague of boils and they can't stop it, it's significant. Imhotep was the god of medicine and the god of the healing sciences. The plague of hail, Newt was the, god of, was the sky goddess. The plague of locusts, Isis and Seth had responsibilities relating to the agricultural crops. The plague of darkness, Ra was the sun god. His consistent provision of life-giving light and warmth every day without fail was venerated. Min was the god of procreation and reproduction, the death of the firstborn. Isis was the symbol of fertility or power to produce offspring. Hathor, the goddess of love, was one of the seven deities who attended the birth of children. The apis bull, as I already said, was a firstborn animal. And if Pharaoh was considered a god, then the death of his firstborn was the death of the son of God. So when God attacks these Egyptian deities, Moses fully understands what's going on. And in fact, everybody around him seems to get it except Pharaoh including the priests, because if you read about the priests, they start by emulating him. He turned the rotten isle into blood, we can do it. And then pretty soon they go, well, we can make the gnats come, but we can't make them go away. And pretty soon it's, we can't do what he's doing. And pretty soon they're telling, they're telling Pharaoh, when you get to the plague of locusts, the, fish, the officials and priests are telling Pharaoh, listen to Moses, do what he says. And by the time you get to the plague of the firstborn, he is, and this is from Exodus 11.3, highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. He was set up to be, to be a, viewed as a priest. And in fact, in Exodus 7.1, God says to Moses, I have made you like a God to Pharaoh. It was intentional. He was set up to be this. And it continues when they leave. He is seen as the priest of the people up until Aaron takes over. Because Moses is the one who puts his hands on Aaron and ordains him as a minister, ordains him as a priest. It's Moses who does that. Why? Because Moses had been ordained already. And he sets the pattern for how the priesthood would move forward. He was almost a king. So not only was he seen as a prophet, not only was he seen as a priest, he was almost seen as a king. Everything he does when he leads the people of Israel out of Egypt is kingly. He confronts the other king and says, let my people go. He is the one who is constantly leading the people of Israel. He is seen as almost a king. So Moses was a big deal. Moses was a big deal. He was significant. He had every reason to be the guy, if you met him at a dinner party, to completely dominate the conversation and talk about how great he was. And in fact, one of my favorite comedians is a guy by the name of Brian Regan. And he has this video where he talks about these me monsters. These me monsters, these people who sit there and talk about me, 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 me. And he has, he has this, uh, this, this thing, well, I have the clip, I want you to see it, because he has this thing that's just great. What is it about the human condition people get something out of that? That's why I have a social fantasy. I wish I was one of the 12 astronauts who have been on our moon. They must love knowing they can beat anybody's story whenever they want. 
They can sit back quietly at a dinner party while some other person, some me monster, is doing his thing and let him go. Let him run with the line while you be quiet. Let him have his moment. Yeah, I'm a big traveler. I have my business. All. I got my own global enterprise. I got to check on, you know, driving in the Autobahn because I keep a fleet of sports cars over in Zurich. You know, I get this Swiss account that I want to check on. Mount Kilimanjaro expedition. Might have to cancel that. You know, runways in Aspen are a lot shorter the first time you go in there. You know, you know, you know, the Pacific Rim Company is going to try to take that over. It's a global enterprise. I walked on the moon. So, so here's Moses. Moses has the ability at any time to sit there and go, I led the people of Israel. I confronted Pharaoh. I did this. I did that. I spoke face to face with God. What have you done? He had that ability and yet he chose not to often because here's the true, the true secret to Moses' greatness. Moses knew who else was truly great. After 80 years, he had finally caught on that it wasn't him, it wasn't Pharaoh, it was God. And so Moses had learned, in short, humility, which is why he can sit there and say, humility's a big deal. And why we can read that he was a very humble man. Because he knew that his true greatness was in his relationship with God, not in any of the things he had done. True greatness comes from what is your relationship with God, not in what have you accomplished for God, but rather where are you in relationship with God? And so I want to talk about some lessons on humility from the life of Moses. And so I have five of them for you this morning. Five lessons on humility from the life of Moses. Number one, Moses valued prayer. Moses prayed and he prayed a lot. Exodus 32, 11, Exodus 32, uh, 31, Numbers 11, Numbers 12, Numbers 14, Numbers 21. All are instances where Moses is recorded as praying and there are more that I didn't have space to list and there are times where he wasn't recorded where I'm sure he was praying. And what's interesting about all of those is all of those are times where he was praying for the people he was leading, not himself. He was praying for the people he was leading even though they were confronting him, even though they were complaining against him, even though they were arguing with him and at times trying to usurp him, he was still praying for them. Moses valued prayer. I read a book called Cat and Dog Theology and, and, and it has a, a, a great analogy. Anybody, I have a cat. Anybody who has a cat knows this to be true. My cat looks at the world and says, you feed me. You provide a place for me to sleep. You keep me warm and safe. You take care of me. I must be God. (laughs) And a dog looks at the world and says, you feed me, you take care of me. You provide me a place to stay and keep me warm. You must be God. So let me ask you this. When it comes to prayer, do you pray like a cat or do you pray like a dog? Is your prayer focus on yourself or is your prayer focus on God? Where do you pray? How often do you pray? And these aren't things that we measure and sit there and check off checklists and say, okay, I prayed enough, I did this enough. But rather the question is, like Moses, are you a person who's willing to pray for the people that annoy you the most? How would you define your prayer life right now? 
Is prayer something that you value? Is prayer something you're humble enough to admit you need? If so, we have a prayer ministry. We have people who will be up here after the service who would love to pray with you. We have Gateway, where it's a place that you can go and be prayed over that we talked about last week. Prayer is a big deal. Are you willing to admit you need it? Moses, number one, was humble enough to admit he needed prayer. Number two, we see the humility of Moses in how he responded to sin. More specifically, in the difference in how he responded to sin when he was a young man and much later on. When he first sinned, that is recorded. He sinned multiple times before this. But when he murders the Egyptian, how does he respond? He tries to hide it. He tries to take care of it himself. And then when that doesn't work, he runs away. How often do we do that? Where, where we, we make a mistake, we do something, and our response is, I'm going to hide it. And when I find out I can't hide it, I'm going to run away from it. And later on, we see Moses where God tells him, uh, and the people are complaining, the people are belligerent, and the people are mad. And, and he, several times, Moses turns to God and goes, God, these aren't my people. I didn't give birth to them. Why do I have to deal with them? And God says, here's what you're going to do. Go down, speak to the rock and water will come forth. And Moses, in his anger, goes down and strikes the rock with his staff. And it's enough to disqualify him from ever entering the promised land. So Moses has once again sinned, and sinned publicly, and sinned in a big way. And you know how he responds? By moving forward. By moving forward in his relationship with God. And even after he sins, we find him time and time again getting on his knees and praying not for himself but for the people of Israel. Specifically we read in Numbers 27 which is after he has struck the rock by a good ways. Numbers 27 verses 12 through 17. Then the Lord said to Moses go up this mountain in the Abarim range and see the land I will give the Israelites. After you have seen it, you too will be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. For when the community rebelled at the waters in the desert of Zin, both of you disobeyed my command to honor me as holy before their eyes. These were the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the desert of Zin. Moses said to the Lord, may the Lord, the God of the spirits of all humankind, appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. How does Moses respond? He goes, God, if you're not gonna have me leading them, please have somebody else who values you. Please have somebody else who's, who's willing to go in front of you for them and fall on his face and pray for them. Please, God, take care of them. That's his response. So my question is this. What sin do you need to respond to today? What's a sin that in your life has gotten your relationship with God off track and you need to respond to? Or maybe it's a sin that's caused you to be in conflict with somebody around you and you need to respond to it. And you need to respond to it by going to that person. And no matter what it is, once you confess it, are you willing to go to somebody else and say, would you keep me accountable on this? This is an area that I keep making a mistake. Would you keep me accountable? Would you talk to me about this? Would you make sure that I don't do this again? Because Moses was willing to admit that he made mistakes and he responded to it in humility. 
Number one, Moses was a man of prayer. Number two, Moses responded well to sin. Number three, Moses kept his focus on God despite his current situation. We read again in Numbers chapter 14. The people rebel, which they rebel time and time and time again. And here's another example. In Numbers 14, verses 12 through 16. The whole assembly, uh, let's start back up in verse 10. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. They're, they're mad. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. And Moses, listen to this, listen to his, his, his response. Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power, you brought these people up from among them and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, O Lord, are with these people and that you, O Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put these people to death all at one time, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised. Moses' concern when the people are threatening to kill him is, yeah, but God, if you kill them and make me into a great nation, other people are gonna talk about it. And they're gonna go, that God, he couldn't do it, couldn't get it done. His focus remained on God. And we see later on that the people do talk about it in the nations around them. In Joshua, when, when, when the spies are with Rahab, what fascinates me is they go, when we heard the Israelites were coming, we trembled because we knew what God had done when he parted the waters of the Red Sea and when he plundered the Egyptians and destroyed their army. That's why they're afraid. Because they saw what God did 40 years prior. They cross the Red Sea, they rout the Egyptians. Then they spend 40 years wandering in circles in the desert. Then they show up at Jericho's doors and Jericho goes, ooh, we saw what happened 40 years ago and we're still scared. And Moses kept his focus on God instead of being like, yeah, you're right, God, these people are annoying. I am sick of them threatening to kill me and stone me and uh, complaining about you and complaining about me. You wanna start a new nation with me? I'm game, let's do it. Let's start over. I'll be a great nation. That would have been my response or it would have been tempting anyway. And Moses goes, but God, it's not about them. It's not about me. It's about you. It's all about you. And we see it again in the bronze snake where the Israelites once again rebel and they once again turn and God sends a plague and tells Moses, lift up a bronze snake and anyone who looks at it will live and be able to enter the promised land. And Moses does it knowing full well already that he will never enter the promised land. He helps create a pathway for others because his focus was on God, not on himself. Again, I might not be the best person to lead the people of Israel because my temptation would have been like, oh, you mean if they die, they don't go into the promised land? Well, neither do I, so good luck. Moses doesn't do that because his focus remains on God. And by keeping his focus on God, he's able to focus on the others around him despite how they treat him. 
So here's my question for you. Where is your focus? Where is your focus? Are you in a current work situation or family situation? Are your brothers and sisters driving you so crazy that you can't keep your focus where it belongs? Where is your focus? And if it's not on God, what do you need to do to keep your focus on God today? What is it that you need to put in your life so that like Moses, when you're so upset and so angry, you can turn and keep your focus on God? Where's your focus? Are you able to keep your focus off of yourself and be others focused because of your focus on God? How can you shift your focus? So number one, Moses valued prayer. Number two, Moses responded well to sin. Number three, Moses kept his focus on God. And number four, Moses knew when to give up. Again, we see this best in the way he did it poorly before and does it well later on. In, in Exodus chapter three, he's standing at the burning bush and, and God shows up in the burning bush and says, Moses, I'm gonna send you to Egypt to get my people out of Egypt. You're gonna go there. You're gonna tell them to come out and, and it's gonna be great. And, and he goes, well, God, there's just a few problems with your plan here. I'm not the best speaker. I'm not a big deal anymore. You know, all these things. And one of the things he lists is his inability to speak. And God says, fine, take Moses or take Aaron. Your brother, he'll speak for you. And we see Moses at the beginning Again, still trying to rely on himself. And God says, I'm gonna make you ask for help. But quickly Moses learns his lesson because by the time we get to Exodus 17 and the Israelites are in their first battle and they're not ready for battle. These are not soldiers, they're slaves. They're recently freed slaves and all of a sudden they find themselves in battle. And so God, wanting them to know exactly who's in control, has the battle play out where anytime Moses' hands are up in the air, they're winning. And when his hands come down, they're losing. And, and this is the first time we see Joshua, the Joshua who will take Moses' place, show up. And what's his first job? Holding up Moses' hands because they're too tired. Moses can't even hold his hands up in the air long enough. And so he goes, guys, come hold my hands up. And so Joshua comes along and holds up his hands. And we see it later on when all the people, they're finally out in the wilderness and, and, and they've finally gotten away from all the, the people chasing them. And, and, and all of them are coming to Moses with all of their problems. And he's getting overwhelmed and his father-in-law Jethro shows up and his father-in-law says, Moses, you can't do this by yourself. You need to stop. You need to ask for help. And Moses goes, yeah, but where are they gonna go? And Jethro basically says, do you think you're the only one capable of doing this? And so God leads Moses and, and they, they select other people to start handling the internal bickering, the internal disagreements. And all of a sudden Moses doesn't have to do it all anymore. He's no longer getting burnt out, but he had to stop. He had to ask for help. It takes humility to ask for help. It takes humility to get to the point where you go, you know what, I can't do this by myself anymore as much as I want to do it because I think I'm a big deal. I need to stop and say, would you help me? And as a young guy, especially, that's really hard sometimes for me to ask for help. Why? Because I can do this. I'm a young guy, I can do anything. I'm invincible. I had this... Uh, 
I was in college and I wanted to go to this concert and it was several hours away from where I lived at the time. And it was a New Year's Eve concert, so it didn't end until one in the morning. So at one in the morning, I got in my 87 Chevy Nova with a 1.4 liter and I uh, had to make this two and a half hour drive at 54 miles an hour because that's as fast as the car went. And I'm driving and I get in the car and I go, it's one in the morning, I'm exhausted. God, I need your help. I need you to keep me awake because I probably shouldn't be on the road. Now, a more mature person might have just not gotten on the road, but I said, God, keep me awake. And I get in my car and I start driving and I literally got two blocks from my house and I said, I verbally said this out loud. I said, God, I got it from here and I fell asleep. Within two blocks, I was asleep behind the wheel. I was wide awake. And then I said, God, I got it from here because me as a guy, I wanted to say, I can do the last two blocks. Where do you need to ask for help? Why is it so hard for us to ask to help? Ask for help. Is there a specific area in your life that you need help? We have a counseling ministry. We have a family ministry. We have an adult ministry. We would love as a church to come alongside you and help you and be the body for you. And if you can't find it here, find it someplace. Where do you need to ask for help? Be humble enough to admit you can't do it on your own. And finally, I want to talk about this, that humility does not excuse inaction. Again, we see Moses standing in front of the burning bush, and he's, God has given him Aaron, and God has told him who he is, and God has told him he's going to go with him. And at the very end, Moses finally says, God, just send someone else. And then we see God get angry, and God say, no, Moses, I've asked you to do a job. Go do it. Humility doesn't mean we sit on the sideline. Humility doesn't mean we don't have to do anything. Humility does not allow us to be inactive. William Shedd said this, a ship in a harbor is safe, but that is not what ships are built for. And I would expand it and say, a rowboat is safe in the harbor, but that's not even what a rowboat is made for. Just because you're humble doesn't allow you to stay tied to the pier. You have to do something because, because the thing about humility is humility acknowledges that it's not about me. It's not about how great I am. It's about how great God is. And if God is who he says he is and I am who God says I am, then I can go forward into what God has called me to do no matter how big or little it is, but I cannot any longer sit on the sideline. So how is God asking you to move into his greatness? How is God asking you to take the next step to know, follow, or become like Jesus? How is God challenging you to become more like him and to step into his greatness? Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for the story of the life of Moses. God, we ask that you would move us into your greatness, not in our own power, but God, move us off the sidelines in who you are. I praise your name. Amen.